As you've heard by now, the record on Minerva's later life is spare. But thanks to her obituary in the New York Times, we know a few things for sure. Minerva Parker Nichols died on Thursday, November 17, 1949, in Westport, Connecticut. She was preceded in death by her husband, the Reverend William Ichabod Nichols, and her younger daughter, Caroline Nichols. She was survived by her older daughter, Adelaide Nichols Baker, her two sons, John Doan Nichols and William Nichols, eight grandchildren, and over 60 buildings. Around the time her daughter Adelaide died in 1974, Adelaide's papers were donated to the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe College in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Swept up in that donation of papers were a handful of Minerva's drawings. Outside of the family's private papers, the collections at Schlesinger Library are matched only by the Athenaeum of Philadelphia and the Architectural Archives at the University of Pennsylvania if you want to see Minerva's work up close. Well, that, and her surviving buildings, of course. This is What Minerva Built, a podcast about the story of architect Minerva Parker Nichols and a conversation about what she can teach us about the work of architecture, history, and preservation today. I'm your host, Molly Lester, and this is Episode 8, What Minerva Built. For Minerva, you know, for our collection, there's just a few drawings. This is Heather Isbell Schumacher, the archivist at the University of Pennsylvania's Architectural Archives, which preserves the works of more than 400 designers from the 17th century to the present, including Minerva, who is represented in the form of a few drawings and one leaflet of specifications for the Campbell sister residence. The archives are led by curator Bill Whitaker. I think one of the interesting things for, for Bill, who'd also been using these collections, was he was using it to show undergraduate architects how, you know, what an architect does. I mean, that sounds very basic, but like, this is what they need to, to draw, to communicate. And it had always just sort of been presented in that way with the understanding that like, hey, there's, there's something more here. And, you know, the, that, that absence is the thing that always sort of like those of us who care about collecting, um, you know, is always the the sort of click, you know, like we should think about that or like as we go out, we should we should interrogate that. I connected with Heather and Bill in the process of interrogating that absence. And together, we've spent the past five years thinking critically about the archives papers, which represent one of our few tangible remembrances of what Minerva built and how Minerva got it built. There is embedded memory in these records, and as Heather points out, their presence calls attention to all the other absences in the written record of Minerva's career. And now, I think, the question is what we will build in our work, how we will wrestle with these questions of professional practice in order to expand the record. So part of it is really just, you know, as an archivist and a curator spending time with the material, finding the people out there who are around um, that you could conduct interviews with, and then, you know, bringing them into the process of, of arranging and describing the collection. As was true in all three case studies we heard about in Episode 7, this work requires a lot of unlearning, and it demands that we abandon any pretense that this work is neutral, because in most cases, the guise of neutrality is simply a mask for the status quo. 
Let me be clear. We are not neutral. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, I mean, the neutrality is actually a really interesting thing. And it's one of the conversations happening. Um, I mean, it's been happening. It's not a new conversation. It's definitely a conversation that's been happening um, in archives for a long time. I think most people working in this field right now would say we, we are not neutral, first of all, and we should not be neutral. You know, a lot of us are in this work because we, uh, you know, we care very deeply in our personal professional lives about um, oppression and marginalized people. And so one of the ways that this takes shape is just, you know, making those stories visible. It's taken decades and centuries to get here, and it will take, you know, a long time to undo that. It takes a really long time to reconstruct someone's life and work. In Minerva's case, Making her story visible has meant years of careful, often dead-end research to catalog her projects and measure her impact. I've made road trips to track down her surviving buildings, written letters to absolute strangers, and spent countless hours on deep dives into census records to identify where her clients lived at the time she designed a house for them. It's required visits to obscure corners of a library to find the course catalogs from her years of teaching— or special trips to a special archive to see a pamphlet of specifications, or detours on a long road trip to see a railroad town where she designed several buildings. It's been a long, long quest, and each discovery launches more questions as we try to understand Minerva at a remove of several decades from her death. But this is the kind of effort that it takes to avoid neutrality and preserve what is missing. Building the archival record is one vital way to counteract memory loss. And to do that work, collaboration is key. For archives, I think, you know, one of the things that has been most helpful is to just also hear from other archivists. And and even beyond that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, people who don't necessarily have the credentials of being an archivist, uh, but who are, you know, community history keepers. And just, you know, finding building those coalitions outside of the walls of the university. So there's there's a lot of, you know, interpersonal work to do in those in those areas as well and to and to frankly gain the trust of people to to bring those collections to us. It's that kind of trust building that brought Corey Kegerice into the network of Minerva's community history keepers. Corey works for Pennsylvania's State Historic Preservation Office as the community preservation coordinator for Eastern Pennsylvania. His role in preserving Minerva began with a phone call. I um, came to Minerva through Mill Ray or Cranoleth. I got a phone call one day from a consultant who I knew when I was working for the Maryland State Historic Preservation Office um, who said, I have a childhood friend who works for this nonprofit organization um, up in Northeast Philadelphia who's got this really cool property and they are trying to raise money and they think they've got this interesting history angle that they would like to um, dive into. So I roll up to this house, which is a lovely house uh, in an otherwise indistinguished neighborhood in Northeast Philly, and sit down in this around this dining room table with this group of women where they proceed to tell me all about the this incredible suffrage story to to this place and by the way it was designed by the first you know female architect to practice independently in the country that conversation marked the beginning of Corey's collaboration with the stewards of Milray at Cranleith Spiritual Center people like sister Mary Trainer 
who we've heard from in other episodes. Corey worked with the folks from Craneleith to lay the groundwork for designation on the National Register of Historic Places. I wrote that nomination in 2016, and the House was officially recognized in January 2017. Mill Ray and the New Century Club of Wilmington are the only two Minerva-designed buildings on the National Register today. Is it stylistically the best Queen Anne house ever built? No. Is it probably even the best Queen Anne house that Minerva designed? Probably not. But does it have this important part of, does it, does it occupy this important space in, in her career? Because if we agree that she is important, what she accomplished is important then this is a represented, you know, a, an important representation of that, you know, of a, of a moment in her career which, from which other things sprang. And I think we need to be more open to putting things on a spectrum as opposed to looking for absolutes. In writing that nomination for Mill Ray, it was not always an easy process to justify the significance of Minerva and her work for all the reasons we've talked about on this podcast. And the challenge continues in other ways with other sites and advocates. But these are the people and places that we need to restore in more ways than one. I encounter far more people in my, in my work who want to understand, um, maintain, preserve, celebrate their community or their, their house. Um, whether they think it is some grand piece of architecture or if it's just sort of a perfectly, you know, lovely place to live. Um, and, but there are like real world financial implications to owning any property. Um, and there are some special technical considerations to, um, owning an old, you know, a historic house or, you know, a, an older property. Um, not the least of which is making sure that you make the right material choices and construction choices so that you don't inadvertently do har- more harm than, than good. So the work continues, and designation in the National Register does not solve all problems. It offers a meaningful way to expand the record and document overlooked sites and people, but it does not grapple with the actual work of preserving their bricks and mortar and stewarding them for future generations. Designation in the National Register comes with few restrictions, but it offers little financial incentive either particularly when it comes to the single-family residences that were Minerva's specialty. In the United States, and in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in particular, the burden of stewardship is on individual property owners. There are limited tools in the preservation toolbox to support them, whether we're talking about the sort of technical assistance that Corey provides or financial tools to offset costs. There are individuals and organizations working to expand this toolbox, and contribute to the restoration of these places in meaningful, tangible ways. Hope Crew comes to mind as one example. But if we're really committed to preserving what is missing, then I hope that we will find ways to expand that toolbox, whether it means lobbying our public officials to expand historic tax credits, or supporting our local, regional, and national preservation organizations, or contributing directly to the nonprofit stewards of these sites, like Craneleith Spiritual Center and the Delaware Children's Theater, if we want to preserve these underrepresented histories in the fullest sense. I think more of those kinds of life cycle and sort of full service programs would go a long way to making preservation seem useful 
because it's not always just about money. It's sometimes about time, expertise, anxiety, and just knowledge. Minerva's story offers an opportunity to push the bounds of traditional preservation, not just in terms of the stories we tell, but also in terms of the tools we create for documentation, preservation, and interpretation. Her work too often falls outside the traditional boundaries of preservation and invites us to reconsider what and who preservation is for. More on that after a break. What I realized was that this, it wasn't that the profession wasn't noticing, um, but they noticed very early on that there was some issue with women. This is Despina Stratagakos, who you'll remember from earlier episodes, is an architectural historian and the vice provost for inclusive excellence at the University at Buffalo. She wrote a book called Where Are the Women Architects? A title with intentional irony. Of course, they didn't realize the degree to which the profession was creating the issue. But this conversation happens and then is forgotten, happens, you know, and is forgotten. The issue is raised and raised and raised again, and then forgotten, forgotten, forgotten. Architecture seems to have uh, an amnesia problem around its gender issues, that it notices that something is amiss and then forgets about it, and then it comes back into kind of public consciousness and then fades away. The reason I wrote this book was just out of sheer ornery determination that we just once and for all finish this dialogue and move forward so that we can actually, you know, move toward productive um, approaches to resolving the issues rather than just scratching our heads every five years and saying, huh, yeah, wonder where the women are. So let's talk productive approaches and what we can do going forward. Not just those of us who make a career out of preserving heritage, but all of us who are involved in this work on a professional or volunteer or visiting basis. It begins by asking ourselves who and what am I preserving? When's the last time I read about or researched or visited a site associated with a woman and a person of color and a person who identifies as LGBTQ? and an Indigenous person. If you're interested in learning more about women architects, you can read up on Minerva, and I hope you do. There's lots more info at www.minervaparkernichols.com. But also read up on Beverly Lorraine Green, who is understood to be the first Black woman to become a licensed architect in the United States. She earned her degree from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and went on to work with giants in the profession, such as Edward Durrell Stone and Marcel Breuer, assisting on designs for New York University and UNESCO's United Nations headquarters in Paris. And then there's Georgia Louise Harris-Brown, who is considered to be the second Black woman to become a licensed architect in the United States. She was responsible for structural calculations on the apartments at 800 Lakeshore Drive in Chicago but eventually relocated to Brazil because she found that the opportunities for advancement in the United States were too limited by her race. 
Sure enough, in Brazil, she designed manufacturing complexes and a film factory and an airport and ran her own interior design firm. Both of these women deserve monographs and podcast treatments of their own, as do many others. But until they have them, we can at least read up on them. If you're interested in the issues around gender equity in the design professions, you can follow the work of Equity by Design and Move Over Bob and read the publications of Despina Stratagakos. You can also seek out, and maybe even hire, the architects and designers you heard on this podcast, including Jazz Graves, Ifri Escott, Fawn Wang, Nan Gutterman, Nicole Dress, and Mary Denedi. If you live in the Research Triangle area in North Carolina, hire Angela Cacase for your carpentry and remodeling projects. If you're interested in historic sites and preservation, you can nominate a site with underrepresented history to the National Register of Historic Places and your local historic register, and advocate to your elected officials for new financial incentives such as revolving loan funds and expanded rehabilitation tax credits for owner-occupied historic buildings. Because the tangible power of place matters. My grandchildren have gotten used to me pointing buildings out, historic buildings and architecture. Architect Mary Denedi. And my granddaughter, when she was quite young, she said, Noni, they called me Noni, Noni, um, why, why do you like these old buildings? Why do you keep, you know, pointing them out? And I said, do you have memories yet? And I said, well, you know what? Old buildings are memories you can touch. Minerva built a lot of things in her lifetime including private homes and churches and schools and manufactories. She also built a family and spaces for women and a place for women on both sides of the client table and new norms for dress reform and a new generation of female designers in the form of her pupils and a new understanding of what it meant to be a professional architect. Now the question is, what are we building? My sense is that she was a woman before her time that in this age would have been an architect throughout her life and done a tremendous amount. Carrie Baker is Minerva Parker Nichols' great-granddaughter. She clearly had a lot of energy. She was creative. She was, um, you know, dedicated. But I think her career was cut short because at the time, women couldn't pursue or it was very hard for them to pursue careers and have a family. And I think that frustration, she lived with that her whole life. And, and I think to some degree, it reverberated down in our family. But I think it's really important to remember her work and to um, remember that women have been doing things like design and architecture for over 100 years and making really significant contributions. I think she's one of a, of a l- large number of women that were doing that, but that have not been adequately acknowledged or celebrated. Minerva's frustration may have lingered for generations in the family, but that wasn't the only lasting impact of her work. For that, we'll go back to the buildings themselves and all the life that they still hold. 
it was a, a house that, that held the gift of being able to have many friends come over and, and welcome people in. Sister Mary Trainer grew up at Mill Ray and helped to oversee its transition to use as Cranleaf Spiritual Center. We were pretty, pretty, the neighborhood actually lived here. I mean, after school, the, the kids in the neighborhood would all come over and they would uh, go sledding or, or wait for my mother's chocolate chip cookies. They, they used to wait to help her take things out of the car so she would get the cookies and hot chocolate. And so the neighbors considered it their home as well. They played in those woods. and it, So it wasn't a park, but it was a community a gathering space. They, they, they really, uh, the house on the hill, I mean, it was, belonged to everybody. And that's why when it came into its new being, it, it was new, but not really. And Linda Ferber-Bickle, who with her siblings grew up in a house in Narberth, Pennsylvania, that Minerva designed, now lives there with her husband, Tom. I consider this a Christmas house and a summer house. Christmas because it, it, it has a very traditional Christmas decorating and um, lots of people here and the piano and it's just a, just a very very festive time. Summer with the swimming pool there is so many people that come and go on a daily basis you know cousins extended family. And TJ Scully and Judy Lustig who purchased their house in the Oak Lane section of Philadelphia more than three decades ago. I don't take any ownership of of, uh, of the design of the house. I don't think we built anything in it. We built a home. I mean, that's what it was. It's where we lived for for thirty five years, and and you know have loved every minute of it. Hope someone else gets to do that too, and just don't want to wreck anything that's in here. That's the truth of it. And Donna Swajeski, whose parents purchased the new Century Club of Wilmington and converted it to the Delaware Children's Theater. Donna now owns the only surviving public building and women's club designed by Minerva Parker Nichols. My mother was raised by a single mom, and I think the women's cause was very important to her. And she, at that time, was one of the only people doing any theater for kids. I think it really meant a lot to her that this was a building uh, from the first woman architect uh, in that area. I think being entrusted with a building like this is really a, such a privilege. Uh, we also put like fairy lights up on the ceiling and we, it, we, we decorate it for Christmas and we have kids there, four years old for camps running through. So it has a feeling of a home as well as a theater. There are problems here and there, but it's still, when you look at it, there's nothing like it around. So it's very unique. I, again, I would just say, I'm, I'm, every time I walk in there, I just am amazed that this is my building. We are trying to build a special place out of time where you can still connect, where you can still sort of have magic, where you can still, uh, all the old special, I guess, you know, I, I'm, now I'm getting emotional. It, it's just, I think, you know, for me, it's very hard because my parents, my dad is deceased and my mother is, you know, very not Ill, not well. So it, it's very tied up with them. So for me, I guess, personally, it, I'm keeping their legacy alive, and then I'm adding my legacy to all these amazing women. So for me, it is very personal. It's personal for me, too. Researching Minerva Parker Nichols has gotten me through a lot of ups and downs in my life, 
and rediscovering her career has been a worthwhile and meaningful pursuit for nearly 10 years now, and counting. But there's so many other Minervas to learn about, too, and so much work still to do. The story of Minerva Parker Nichols' career, and a lot of women's careers, is a story of gatekeeping. First, in terms of her access to the practice of architecture, and second, in terms of her acknowledgement in the history of architecture. Her success in getting through the first gate depended on her education, expertise, and persistence. Getting her through the second gate depends on ours. This series was written and produced by Molly Lester, with financial support from the James Marston Fitch Charitable Foundation. You can find out more about Minerva Parker Nichols and see videos of her buildings at www.minervaparkernichols.com. Podcast production by Justin Geller. Editorial advising by Samantha Kurland. Additional advising by Ashley Hahn, Heather Isbell Schumacher, Bill Whitaker, and Kelly Witten. Videography for the companion video shorts by Caitlin Levesque. Voiceovers for the podcast by Kim Chantry, Michael Bacon, Alex Lester Abdallah, Elizabeth Lester Abdallah, Catherine Lester Bacon, Graham Peterson, and Neil Peterson. Many, many thanks to the Nichols Baker family for their support of this research and to everyone I interviewed for this project, including Carrie Baker, Patrick Baker, Angie Ferber Bickle, Linda Ferber Bickle, Heather Bodenstab, Angela Cacase, Mary Werner Denadi, Sarah Dreller, Nicole Dress, Efri Escott, Jazz Graves, Nan Gutterman, Corey Kegerice, Susan Kolber, Ken Lustbader, Judy Lustig, Ruth Picosi, Monica Rhodes, Heather Isbel Schumacher, TJ Scully, Despina Stratagakos, Donna Swajeski, Sister Mary Trainer, Fawn Wang, Christine Witkowski, and Aaron Wunsch. Thanks for listening. Thank you to the James Marston Fitch Charitable Foundation. And thank you to Minerva. Minerva.